I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest wrote this heart-wrenching story. It just, it, it, it's, I don't know what to tell you. Two children kept in an attic with a hundred years between them, based on a true story. Oh my God. And a, a bit of imagination when I spoke to the author, but what a story. You know, I, I avoid to hurt my heart or normally I don't want to spend my life in things. I believe life has enough drama on its own. So why add more synthetic drama? But this will teach you so much. It's called The Attic Child. And the author is an author, a psychotherapist, a speaker, Lola Jaye, who is uh, an incredible British black author. We're going to talk about that. And uh, seven novels already with a few other writings like me that she writes, but doesn't publish yet. So I'm going to try and convince her to publish them. <laughs> and uh, it is, again, part of our mini series associated with the publication of my book, uh, That Little Voice in Your Head. We published almost the same time. So it's an honor and a privilege to welcome Lola. Lola, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for hurting my heart. <laughs> this story, you say it's a true story. I mean, it's a child in 1907. Yes. That's kept in an attic. And then another child, a hundred years later, that's, that, that is kept in the same attic. Yeah. Well, the true story part ends with just a child who basically was brought over here from Africa in the Edwardian era by an explorer. And I saw his photograph in the National Portrait, Portrait Gallery and I knew I had to write his story. So he actually died at 12. So there wasn't much to write about. So I went about writing, rewriting his story. And the question was, what would have happened if he had lived? So the part of the attic, that's more my imagination, I'm afraid, um, which probably says a lot about me, because I wanted a way of bringing his story out, but bringing it out where there is some drama, that something happens. So this is where the story of these two children come about. I wanted to show this child in Edwardian times, but also a child in more modern times at the same time. What is the relationship between them? I mean, oh, well, we're not going to do any spoilers no. because everyone's <laughs> going to read this, but uh, no. Um, well, he is locked in the attic a hundred years before, as you said, and then a hundred years later when she, um, well, almost a hundred years later, when she's locked in the attic, she finds these artifacts mm -hmm. belonging to somebody. And then she realizes that somebody was here before her. So she finds a, a necklace and an African bone necklace and some writing on a wall in an unidentifiable language. Mm. So she sets about finding who was this person who was in this attic before me and why? Why? Why did we do this? Why? Why? I mean, it's a, I don't know, understand humanity, to be honest. How can that be done? 
Exactly. And it was done. Children were brought over quite routinely from Africa. Um, this is post-slavery, um, maybe as companions, um, accessories. Um, so it wasn't always just about them coming over to work or be a maid. It was, oh, look, I have an accessory. Almost like, oh, I have a pet dog. Um, so researching this book, it was quite disturbing because there's a lot of things that I found out um, during that time. And it was a very unique time that I was doing this. I was doing this in 2020 and we know what happened then. Um, mm. you, so were right you were locked in your attic. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> so I'm writing about these two children locked in an attic. You know, I, I live by myself. So I was in my, my apartment by myself. Um, it's not the same thing, obviously, but we were told not to leave at certain times. So I thought that was quite ironic. And also I'm writing about racism and imperialism at a time when statues have been, you know, pulled down. And the particular person that this is based on, he has a statue too. His name is Stanley. He has a statue that wasn't pulled down, but you can see the similarities that were going on during the time that I was writing this. It was intense. It's always intense, isn't it? I mean, when you really look at our life today, I wonder if we have actually past those times. I mean, luckily it's not as accepted as it is in the no. world, but, but there is a lot of modern day slavery today. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of modern day racism. Would you share a little bit about your own experience? So seven, seven books ago, you started in 2008 was your first Yeah, my first novel, you know, as a writer, you write for years unpublished. So <laughs> I actually got published um, 2008. Oh, is that true? So you wrote how many before that? Ooh, I call them the under the cupboard manuscripts. Oh. So there was a couple that probably was a good idea. It wasn't published, but um, <laughs> okay. But I feel that as any writer, you have to hone your skills. Mm. So the one, the first one you write probably isn't going to be the first one you get published. But you know, you're learning as you go along, mm. for sure. And uh, you write prolifically. Like you write. How long did this very very thick manuscript take you? The Attic Child was kind of unique because it had been in my head for a few years, so it just poured out within six months. I had the first first draft, mm. but that's only the first draft. I mean, it's oh yeah, it's know. never looked. You know, you know what I'm saying, right? It's yeah. it's not great, but mm. the first draft, I always say, I just write for myself and just get everything out that's in my head. Because this little boy, his name is Unduga Mahali, the the original child. It was almost like he was plaguing me. You know, you've got to write this now, so I just had to let everything out. So it, it almost felt easy to do mm. that. Mm. Um, it just became hard when I had to edit it because I had to do the research, and obviously that was quite traumatic for me at that time to be reading about certain things that I was reading about. But the first draft, yeah, that was quote unquote easy. So as you do your research, tell me openly and honestly, how much has changed? In regards to your original question? In regards to our racism and our acceptance of. I feel that we've still got a very long way to go. I feel that in the era that I'm writing about, it was more overt. So, you know, let me bring this black child over to be my pet. It's so overt. Nowadays, it's more in, it's inside, it's still there. So whereas when I was a little girl, I was called the N-word because I my school was in an area that was very, very white. And so I was called that quite openly. But now I think we have it. I mean, that still happens, unfortunately, but we still have this thing called unconscious bias where people will act a certain way in regards to their unconscious racism, whether it's if they see you, oh, where are you from? Um, you're very articulate, you know, I'm articulate. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, just things like that. Oh, They're not man. great. Yeah. I, I've got that. Yeah. Man, as old as I am. With humans. Yeah. It, it's, it's not you, great. You see where, where I come from, 
We have this, you know, there, there is a very, very uh, famous saying in Islam where basically there is no difference between an Arab and a foreigner, a person of light skin and a person of dark skin mm -hmm. other than by their good deeds. And, mm -hmm. and it's so entrenched in all of us. But I can promise you, and I, I swear this is true, Growing up in Egypt, because in Egypt you have all skin colors mm. and they're all fellow Egyptians, right? I actually never noticed in my mind, I remember vividly that I had this friend of mine who was from Sudan and so his hair was curlier than mine. And we would just make fun of how curly his hair is, but I actually never saw him as a different person. It was like my best friend, right? And in an interesting way, if you're never really exposed to that, you don't notice any difference. But then somehow in some societies, it becomes so prominent, even though we hide it, yeah. that it is the first impression people have of other humans. Is this because of the past conditioning? Like if you frequently, like in New York City, the taxi drivers are foreigners, so you expect every taxi driver to be a foreigner. I mean, where did that come from? Well, we know that a child, when a child is born, they're not born with these race, any racist ideals. It's, it changes about three. When they go to school, they see the differences. And it's quite sad when you see that because there is conditioning that happens after that. So yeah, this is something that's ingrained. It's ingrained in society and it's not something that will change overnight. But what I try to do with my work, with my books, is kind of show a little piece of that to kind of highlight it, but in subtle ways. Because I think the ways I've, we've spoke about already are quite overt, but there are subtle ways that I like to bring that out. So I, in that little voice in your head, in the very, very first part of the book, I talk about the things that make us really unhappy. And one of them is this kind of conditioning. It's the idea of finding something within you that really almost dictates your entire behavior, your entire perception of the world, your value set, but that this thing is not something you're fully aware of at all. And you end up suffering as a result of a fact that you your behavior is informed literally by the opinions of others, not by your own self. So tell me a bit about going back to 2008, being published for the first time. It is a reality that the publishing industry is still not very diverse at all. So what was your experience going through that? Well, there wasn't many people that looked like me then. And um, it was interesting because the book that I had out then was about it was a, a fiction book, but it was mostly about grief, about a father who was dying and wanted to teach his little girl um, how to be a person before he went. So he wrote her this manual. And so Black people that were being published, and it, it was mostly about race, I guess. And I, and I hear I've written a, a book about everybody. So mm. I think that was unique in that sense. And it's only now when I meet people that were in the industry then said, oh, you know, you inspired me. And, you know, I've had an editor say that to me that, you know, she felt inspired by me. She was like an assistant at the time because um, there wasn't any women of colour or many women of colour there. So, um, yes, publishing has changed. And we know that post-2020 and what happened then, it's forced a lot of change. So it's my hope that it will continue that way. And it's not just a flash in the pan. But so far, so good. Do you believe, so, so you have your beautiful Oh my God, such a beautiful smile on your picture on the backside <laughs> with your lovely fluffy hair. Uh, I don't know which hair to like more. Do you believe this makes you sell more books or less books or is it irrelevant? Um, 
at the moment we're living in a different time. Mm. Um, I think post 2020, it's different. Um, there are more diverse, some excellent writers now being recognized. Um, there were always great black writers, but they weren't given the chance. Mm. Um, and now they are. Um, so what sells more books? Do you know the secret to that? Tell me. I I actually have a theory, believe it or not, and I complain about it to a lot of people. Most books, because of the way the industry is done, and you want to hit the charts, because if you hit the charts, you become very successful, right? But hitting the charts basically is a question of how many books sold in one week, which, if you ask me, is a marketing job. Has nothing to do. I mean, like I could write a book that has a good cover because that's marketing, a lot of branding on the cover so that it attracts people, a bit of, you know, a clickbait as the title and white pages inside. Mm -hmm. If I market Mm. it well and it sells enough on the first week, people will, it will hit the charts and more people will buy it and say, Hmm. Interesting that he let, he kept the pages white. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. It really is quite a thing for me because my very first dear, dear, dear friend and agent. So my, my very first interaction with, with the publishing industry was through my wonderful friend and agent, uh, Michael Carlyle. And Michael, when we were writing Soul for Happy, simply said, look, there are books that hit the charts and there are books that are evergreens. And he basically completely instructed me almost in a an authoritarian way to not write the book for the charts, but rather write the book so that everyone who reads it tells two people who will tell two people, which was my mission anyway. And his instruction was very clearly, I want you to sell more copies of your book every year than the year before. Right. And believe it or not, that's actually the case with Soul for Happy. So so Soul for Happy sells more every year than the year before. Oh, that's it, awesome. Which basically means that more people like it enough to recommend it to their friends and then their friends would buy more of it. Again, not about selling books, but really about spreading the message. But like you, I mean, I have to admit I didn't belong at all in the industry, not just because of my ethnicity, but also because of my title. I mean, like, who's this techie who's writing about happiness? And and we get all of those preconceived perceptions, like unless you're a psychotherapist or a psychologist, why are you writing on a topic that's not yours? And it was quite interesting how we had to work through that. You do the opposite. So you are a psychotherapist. Yeah, I have a private practice. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about that. What we, we, I want to talk about happiness a little bit. So what is your practice about? Well, Happiness can be quite elusive to some people. And sometimes that is the aim, but it's not always possible in the higher sense. So really I like to focus on, I mean, obviously I can't talk about individual clients um, right now, but just as a whole, my the way I work is, it's about being happy in the moment. Mm-hmm. Cause sometimes we have these ideas that I'm going to be happy when I get the house, I get the car would know. And I've been there. What happens now? In this moment, this is so important. This moment that we're living right now, what makes you happy? It might be, you know, going for a walk in the park might make you happy in this moment. It might be, you know, watching your child sing, whatever it is, be in that moment and acknowledge that happiness. It's not about you'll be happy when, because you might be waiting 20 years or it may never happen, that big car that you want. Mm. So if it doesn't happen, then what happens to you? Yeah. I think the more interesting bit is that until it happens, you're unhappy. And then when it happens, you go like, uh, that's it. 
Exactly. <laughs> right? So what, what else should I want now to keep going and wake up every day? Right? Exactly. And it's always something bigger, isn't there? Mm-hmm. So you want, maybe you want the Merc, then you might want the, the Lamborghini. So you're always chasing. Mm-hmm. In that time, you're not being happy in the moment. You're not appreciating the most beautiful things that you can appreciate. And that's, that's really about me as well. I, I've learned in the past few years to appreciate the, the small things. They're important because life is short. That is a cliche, but it's true. I think it's long, honestly. But Do you? Explain that to me, Mo. I don't know. I believe, I believe that my personal experience is that life feels very short when you're not living it. It's quite interesting because I do meditate the traditional way, but I also, in that little voice in your head, I have a chapter about experiential thinking and the idea of meditation and how you can focus entirely on what I call meditation in the modern world. Because to be in the meditation room for 10 minutes a day doesn't cut it. It really doesn't reconfigure your brain in the ways that I'm trying to promise people in in that little voice in your head. And I started to practice this perhaps... 12 years ago. Before that, I refused the word meditation. When someone told me to say, um, I was like, get out of here, right? I don't want to talk to you, right? right. But then, then I started to learn and I started to realize something. I, you know, if, if you know the Pink Floyd song, it's called Time, actually, appropriately titled. The lyrics would say, and then someday you find 10 years have gone behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. And that lyrics stopped me on one day because yes, you know, we're now in June, okay? And it feels like it's February. And I kept questioning that for a long time. Why does time fly so much? And why does it sometimes actually feel there? Like, why am I enjoying this conversation so much? And it will remain as a big part of my memory. I'm not going to remember it as one minute, just like I remember the last six months as one month. I'm going to remember it as a full hour, right? And the difference is really interesting. In my research, I realized that the moments where you live fully in the moment register in your mind as moments moments when you've lived, yeah. okay? And so when I started to do that by being present all the time, I promise you, I feel that the 12 years I lived since then have been longer than my entire life because time literally slows down when you're present, when you're fully in there. And then I'm not saying it's too long, but I'm saying we can make it longer. We can make ourselves live if we actually avoid all of the distractions and the binge watching of Netflix and, and, and literally be in the present moment, right? I think that's a great point. And, and I think not enough of us are present. At all. We're just rushing about onto the next thing. And I think that's the thing that the lockdown did. It, it forced people to mm. slow down. You know, people were saying, oh, you know, I, I spent time with my kids. I, I took them to the park. What were you doing before? You know, so, and then people were saying that that has forced me to do that and I'm going to carry that on. But I'm not seeing much evidence of that now. Now Sadly people are getting not. back to normal, aren't they? Yeah. But yeah, I think that is definitely the key word is being present. And being present can just mean the smallest and sweetest thing. It doesn't have to be anything huge. Um, as you said, this conversation now, we are present. There are no distractions. Yeah. And it's not very easy to do that. I know you mentioned meditation where you're, I mean, I've tried to do that sometimes, but the distractions, it, it's a skill to actually be able to do that. Yeah, I, I find that traditional meditation, one of my favorite conversations when I was here on slow-mo was Galing Tupton, who is sort of one of the most prominent monks in the United Kingdom. 
And his view of meditation is that most people fail at it because they think there is a way to succeed at it. And what he taught me was, no, you know, the idea of meditation is you want to fail at it so that you pull your brain down, back down to calm. So, you know, you're trying to, to, to be calm and have a, a mind that's not too active. And then your mind escapes and goes into something, right? And then you bring it back down to calm. That exercise in his view is what is needed. So to be better at meditating, what he says is you need to get distracted every now and then, because without distraction, you're not doing the muscle. You're not exercising the muscle that brings you back. How do you write then if you're, you spend, I'm guessing hours every day in that zone that is highly meditative, right? Yeah. So tell me a bit about your writing style. I mean, this story gripped me from the start and I knew I had to write it. So once I tell myself, once I stop procrastinating, because every writer will tell you that's what they do. Once I've done every, every chore in the house that needs doing or doesn't need doing. <laughs> Which you didn't want to do anyway. No, and it didn't yeah. really need doing anyway. Yeah. Um, I can, yeah, once I start, that's it. Once the characters, they come alive. They, they? they actually just leap off the page. Mm. And so it then becomes quite easy. You get to know them. I must confess, I do have conversations with my characters. Do you? Yeah, when I'm not writing i just get to know them and um no yeah. no 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 hold on hold on i'm not gonna pass this one what does this mean so you're gonna be cooking some pasta for you and for the child or oh it usually happens when i go to sleep before i go to sleep or when i wake up that's incredible like i've had ideas when i've been asleep and that's why i have a notebook by my bed and they always say just to write it straight away because i forget if i have a dream mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. a character but before i go to bed yeah that there's conversations i know i sound a bit off don't i no it sounds amazing, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> so um, so there's an intimacy there. So I know them. I know what they're thinking. I know what they like, what they don't like. So when I'm in that zone of writing, it's just, it's just easy. It just comes out because I already know them. I already mm. know them. I think actors do that. They, do they? They sort of live in character. So they don't have conversations with the character, but they have the conversation as if they were the character. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to kind of be this, um, you know, eight-year-old boy. I've never been an eight-year-old boy, so mm -hmm. it was... You, you never know? No, I, that's true. Yeah. Oh, that's reincarnation. That's another conversation. No, let's not go there. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't remember being an eight-year-old no, boy, I, don't. I think is an accurate <laughs> description. Yeah. So it was... Yeah, it's quite challenging, but it's something that I feel, it just happens. I don't tell myself I'm going to do it. It just happens. Mm. They become a part of me for a while. And usually when the book is delivered, they then leave. But this little boy, he didn't leave uh -huh. until um, my book launch on last month, the 5th of May. And I was about to have the book launch at the bookshop and it he just left. Did he? Yeah. I find that really touching. I mean, the the way you told me the story before we started recording about him literally waiting for you to finish two more books. Yeah. Do you think it's actually him? I mean... I don't know. I wouldn't want to say. I just know that the voice was strong. It was real. And I just hope I, I made him proud. I think you have, for <laughs> sure. So let's go back to therapy a little bit. So, yeah. you know, this is your training. You work as well. I mean, you have clients. So yeah. how do you mix the two of those? We all know you as this way. Yeah, exactly. And they're not very far apart because all the themes in my book always do cover mental health to an extent. They just do. Right? It's like I can't help myself. Um, they just do. But as a therapist, my therapist hat, I can be the two different people 
My friends will say no. They'll say I'm always analyzing them. But um, they do intertwine, but they're also separate in that sense. As a therapist, it's, it's such a privilege. I mean, both jobs are such privileges in the sense that as a therapist, I have this access to people's lives. I don't have the right, but I do. And it's a privilege. Um, in this way, in writing, I get to... I get to speak to people en masse about issues that are important to me. I mean, that that is such a blessing. It's you a, know, an enormous gift, yeah. You know, to be able to do that. And so in that way, they're very similar because I just feel very um, privileged to do both. I had, uh, when my son, after he died, I got a message basically to read Elif Shafak's The 40 Rules of Love, which I believe he sort of insisted that I read. And... The book was really all about, you know, it's a beautiful, I don't read fiction a lot, but this was a book I couldn't put down about that two stories happening, one in the modern world, and one is between Rumi, the poet and the scholar, and Shams, who was the friend that ignited him to become the poet that he was. And the story basically was telling Rumi in a very interesting way that you cannot teach anyone anything until you've been part of their life. So Rumi, that scholar sitting in the mosque and you know teaching people and preaching to people, then starts to go to the brothel and to the bar and to the, you know, sit next to the homeless person and basically starts to really live people's lives. Mm. And I think what you're saying is true. You know, I, you know I'm, I'm not in therapy, but I get the privilege of connecting to the lives of so many thousands of people. And somehow, you get this bit of, I don't know what to call it, maybe pattern recognition that mm -hmm. certain things get us to become unhappy and they become repetitive. Mm -hmm. And yes, every person you talk to will say it from a slightly different angle, a slightly different script, maybe a slightly different novel, but they seem to fit within certain categories. And I, my work in that little voice in your head is basically saying that the biggest or the, the easiest to cut off in this category is thought, is the negative thought. Mm -hmm. And you tend to believe that this negative thought idea is quite paramount to our human unhappiness. Yeah, definitely. It's so easy to focus on the negative. And there is something that I call fortune telling. It's, it's actually big in CBT, this word fortune telling, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm not a cognitive behavioral therapist, just want to add that. But I, I do like this thing about fortune telling, because when you think a negative thought, then your brain goes to the future and it's negative. So for example... I don't know, if I don't get this job, um, I'm not going to be able to afford anything. I'm never going to be able to get my own place. You're now looking into the future. So my thing is, don't be a fortune teller because you don't have that gift. <laughs> Bring it back to now and what you said earlier about being present. Be present. Okay, what are the things that you're doing now that bring you joy and so forth? You know, be present. Because when we think about the future and it's, it's negative, a lot of the time when you're stuck in that negative thought pattern. So again, it's just the thing again, be present. Strip it to now. But it's easy for you and I to say this. I it mean, is. Right? You know, people will always tell me, but you know, you're you're an author, a famous author. You had a good career. You, you're you not really struggling with three jobs a day. I actually am struggling with three jobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I actually, I count five jobs in my life, but people will say you don't have the same pressure. So it's easy for you to say, be present. It's easy for you to say, cut the negative thinking. It's easy to do those things. But how true is that for you? For me, I would say I've been there and life 
even for those on the outside look like they've got everything you don't know people's struggles and that's the thing and as a therapist you you, you totally get it in the sense that we have this persona and I think the Instagram generation are very good at that this persona that everything is okay and I, I have this analogy about the duck when you see a duck gliding across the, the river but underneath they're paddling crazily mm-hmm. a lot of us are doing that Mm. You know, so for me personally, because I'm, I'm assuming your 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 question is 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 to me. I've been there. I've struggled. I definitely know what that's like. I've gone through grief. I mean, I, you know, rec- well, I was, I was recently. I'd say within the last well five years ago, within space of two years, I lost three members of my close family, one after the other. So, but even in that, there has to be something because there, there'll be nothing mm. otherwise. Mm. It's about finding what that is. Is there a light? If that light, even if that light is the size of a, a needle, it's something, we'll work with that. <laughs> yeah, we'll work with that, something. And I think, you know, in, in answer to your earlier question about the two disciplines that I, I'm in, whether it's writing and therapy, with therapy, sometimes you don't, sometimes it's a slow process or you may not get the result that you want, but when I'm writing, I get the result I want. The person will go through the trauma, but boy, they're going to come out okay in the end. Mm. So I get to control that part, whereas the other part I don't get to control. That is the client's job to control their narrative. I'm not going to control that for them. But with that, I'll control it and I'll do what I like. (laughs) (laughs) That's such an interesting way because when I write, I don't do what I like, actually. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I have to say I struggle with, I attempted to write a fiction that I felt was very important at a point in time. I don't know the magic bits like you guys have a twist in the middle and then you do like I don't understand that stuff. I I basically say it exactly as it is. It's like okay, this applies that way. It moves this bolt which you know goes into that nut and you know mm-hmm. life to me is very very mechanical if There's you think logic. Of, there is logic and there are facts, right? Okay. So I don't allow myself to go wherever I want to go, but what you're saying here is that which I have to admit and now I can see it more is that you, those characters are sort of almost representative of real stories that the reader will relate to. Definitely. It's my traumas here, mm-hmm. written in the voice of another character. Mm-hmm. And then and then maybe as you see how the story ends or how the story evolves, you start to think about your own story and how it should and evolve. That's a very, that's, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> And I think everyone can relate to different stories in different ways. So people can relate to being displaced. People can relate to being lonely, whatever the theme is. But it's about having that outcome. And the desirable outcome is that everything's going to be okay. And that means different things to different people. Hmm. What's okay for that child? For that child, it's about autonomy, being their own person. Because if someone is dictating your life, then the ultimate must be that you take that over, that your life then becomes your life and you make the decisions about that life. It's autonomy. Isn't that what everyone's chasing to some extent? I think it is. I think it is. However, I think the beauty of this story is that it doesn't come without paying a bit of a price for it, right? Absolutely. Mm. Um, There is pain, there is some trauma, but there's also hope. And every book I write, I have to leave the the reader with hope because again, if there's no hope, then what do we have? And and I said, if that hope is the the size of a a needle, that's fine. We'll work with that. 
I want to ask you of all of your characters, which was your favorite? In this book? In, no, in general. Oh, no. They're your friends. I know, like, but you I talk, talk to them. But I've let them all, I've let all the other books go. This is the current one. Okay, we'll talk about this current one. Which one is your favorite? Dikembe, the main character, the little the boy, boy, because ah, he's a real mine, person. Mine too, yeah. <laughs> when I asked you when we were having coffee before and I said, so how's the book doing? Ooh. You answered, <laughs> you, 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 you gave me the best answer ever. You said, I don't know, I don't check. No, I don't. That is so cool. <laughs> is it? Oh my God. Like you write the book, you put it out there. There could be a million people reading it right now, reading through your soul. And you have no idea. No, I have literally no idea because I don't want anything to interrupt the process of me writing the next book or turn it into a negative thought. I'm not immune to these things because I'm a therapist. doesn't mean I'm perfect. It's so easy. Surely not. <laughs> we are flawed individuals too. So, so yeah, so that it's a seed, isn't it? So basically the seed will be planted that, oh, just, just in case it wasn't what I want to hear, the numbers weren't what I want to hear, then it'll be, oh, well, clearly this, I'm going to now start fortune telling. So, well, clearly this book's not going to do well. I'm never going to write again. Da, 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 da. You know, it just gets, it sounds a bit dramatic, obviously, but my brain is very dramatic. So, um, and then I'm just going to go there. and I don't want to go there. I've got another book to write. I want to be in a good frame of mind and I want to be present because by me going into the future, I'm no longer present. So I don't want to know. No. And it's funny. I spoke to somebody yesterday. I was having a, an interview and um, they said, oh, you know, I was listening to your book on audiobook, but I had to go and have a physical copy. So I went into Waterstones in Liverpool to buy them. And, and they, were they just, had, yeah, just had one left. Yeah. I'm like, oh, but how many did they order before though? So in my mind, I'm going negative thinking, well, they only had two anyway. It's so <laughs> <laughs> that only one that they bought. <laughs> exactly. And so they said, no, they had 10. And I said, oh, okay, that's nice. Mm-hmm. I have nine victims already and no, you're the tenth, right? Exactly, but my mind was trying to go negative there, thinking, I know well, what you, mean. you yeah. know, so I'm guilty of that. And I have to check myself constantly because I know where it could lead. Yeah. It's a seed, isn't it? And it just turns into this weed. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, I remember vividly, I was giving a talk in Vegas when Soul for Happy came out and uh, 12,000 people in the audience. And normally when I give a talk about happiness, you get a lot of people ordering the book. So yeah. I told my publisher beforehand that I was going to do that talk. I told them in the US, I told them it's going to run out of stock. So please print extra. And so I think they printed like 2000 copies or something. And literally like basically 10 minutes into the talk, Amazon starts to show, okay, if you order, it's going to be two weeks away because they ran out of stock. And I thought the same thought at the time. I was like, come on, people. Like, <laughs> come on. You know, we've got people interested. They were going to invest in their happiness. And then suddenly I said, but 2,000 people got a copy. Like, can you think of that, Mo? Like, and others are okay, right? You know, they're going to get it two weeks later, or maybe it's not the time for them to get it re yet. And when you think about those things and how our brains hijack us, that's truly the... The focus point of what I'm trying to do with this last book is to say, your brain is a tiny bit too grumpy. Okay. <laughs> so, <you laughs> yeah. know, there is a piece of code written in there when, you know, once you start to get into your three years, four years of age, that is the grumpy code. Like everything <laughs> is wrong and the grumpy code runs over everything. I have to admit though, Lola, 
I never understood as much as I did with this work, how much pain can teach us. I mean, yeah. I will say once again, this is heart wrenching. I don't even know how you wrote it, but it is such a beautiful, beautiful, heartbreaking, emotional wake up call. I don't know. It's just so beautiful. I'll ask you one, my favorite question, my last question every time. So of everything you've ever learned, everything you've ever achieved, what's your top, top tip for happiness? Oh, okay. You didn't warn me about that one, did you? I did not warn you about <gasps> that one. <laughs> I had to think about it, prepare my answer. Yes, they don't know. It comes to you. Be in the moment. Be now. Yeah, be in the moment. That's what I've learned. Um, and I think it was fantastic what you just said about when you were in Vegas. And that moment had a, it could have really turned negative into negative thinking that, you know, why did this happen? Why were the books not ordered? And then you just kind of changed your way of thinking. You you stayed in the moment and you were present because, okay, right now I've just sold 2,000 books. And spoken to 12,000 yeah. 12, people, yeah. And they're going to buy it afterwards, but you've you've actually spread the message that you wanted to spread. You've achieved your objective and that's where the satisfaction is. So, I mean, there's many tips, but I think one I've learned is being in the moment. Um, as I mentioned before about, it's not about, I'm going to be happy when I get this, 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 and this checklist. It's good to have long-term goals, but short-term goals lead you to those long-term goals. So the short-term goal could be right now, I need to have a rest in this mm, moment. I do actually. Yeah, do you? <laughs> you probably do. You probably you work a lot, don't you? I do, yes. sadly, especially when it's book launch time. A book, lo yes. book, book launches, most people don't understand this. The, writing the book is the biggest fun. Editing it is a little less fun. Publishing it, oh my God, so much work. You have to learn to look after yourself in that time, Mo. You have to take time out. I keep telling me this, but then, you know, I get the opportunity to meet wonderful people like you. Don't bring me into this. <laughs> <laughs> can, I no. ask you, I can, can I ask you one more question? Sure. I think that I think is very important. Being a black woman and achieving the success you've achieved is mind-blowing. Tips? Stay authentic. Don't let anybody try to mold you into something that you're not, which is any industry. Stay true to who you are. And I know that sounds slightly cliche, but it's true. And I know with writing, I write for me. You know, we spoke about sales figures and, and whatever, that they're lovely and we want that. But in the initial stages, that's not going to get you through this. Because there were times when I was writing and I was not getting paid a penny. I did it because I loved it. So you write for you, be authentic, explore your passion. Writing is, is a passion of mine. If I'm not writing, I don't know what I'm doing. I know. So, <laughs> you know, explore your passion. I mean, it's so amazing. Do what makes you happy. Staying authentic, I think, is the key. I, yeah. I, I had a wonderful conversation with a European woman of the year who got very, very badly discriminated against in the media because she was wearing a headscarf at the time. And we were really talking about that idea of staying authentic, the, the idea that 
if I am to succeed, it is not about trying to blend in by mm-hmm. being someone who I'm not, mm-hmm. because that's almost as if I'm discriminating against myself. Yes, absolutely. Oh, beautiful. Yes. Right? Yes. The, the idea is every one of us is different in a way. And I think once you pretend, you're almost reassuring the world that what they're discriminating against is, is their right. I think the opposite needs to be true. So, yeah, I think that authenticity really, really matters. Absolutely. And just to add to being authentic, also to acknowledge and re-acknowledge that that is their stuff. Don't own other people's stuff. Your opinion of me is not my business. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's really important because it's nothing to do with me. That That's their own trauma. That's their own ideals. Conditioning. I'm me and I'm being authentic to me. I think that makes all the difference in the world. You're wonderful. Love your work. Thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, I will never forgive you for the pain, but it's a beautiful story. Thank you. And uh, for all of you joining us today, I definitely recommend Lola's work. I think it's... uh, Oh, I forgot to say, Jaye is... Oh, Jaye is Love Life in Yoruba. My late mother kind of named me that. (laughs) love life yeah yeah i think that's where we're going to end love life be who you are be authentic (laughs) and i think that's uh truly 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 what uh this work is about at the same time i also want to remind you that life will come with traumas and it will come with challenges and difficulties and i think those of us who basically take those traumas as opportunities and do what they need to do to overcome them are the ones that really come out successful at the end. Lola, thank you so much for being here. Thank you all for listening. As I always remind you, if you fill a five-star review of this, then you're going to make a lot more people listen to it. If you're on YouTube, subscribe, because I want you to subscribe and get the new episodes. If you are sitting next to a friend, just tell them to try some of those slow-mos and whatever it is that you're doing today. If uh, you're busy and running around like a maniac, like I have been for the last uh, month or so, remember that there is always a tiny bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.